The next talk in this collection, this is uh, volume three of uh, the Ajahn Sumato Collected Teachings uh, called Direct Realization. And this is uh, the collection of uh, talks from the book, uh, This is the Way It Is. And this uh, all came from the winter retreat of 1988. So a similar situation to uh, the the, uh, way we have things here at Amravati now, but uh, 33 years ago. And this one is chapter 9 called The Raft. The Buddha pointed to the way of seeing things as they are. This is what we mean by enlightenment. Seeing the way it actually is, we aren't doomed to live in a realm from which there is no way out. There's a clear way out of this realm of misery, a very precise way. The Buddha said, I teach only two things, suffering and the end of suffering. So Buddhism is a baffling religion to Westerners because it has no doctrinal position. It doesn't make doctrinal statements about ultimate reality or anything else. There's just suffering and the end of suffering. That is to be realized. And to realize the end of suffering, you have to admit and really know what suffering is. Because the problem isn't with suffering, but with the delusion and grasping. And we really have to understand suffering. According to the Sermon of the Four Noble Truths, suffering is to be understood. There is suffering, it should be understood. So uh, uh, just uh, to qualify that comment of Lung Po's a little bit, he says um, uh, it doesn't make doctrinal statements. There are a few sort of declarations that we, that we find in the Pali Canon where the Buddha says, you know, it is this way. Um, and so that... Uh, so one can find sort of fault with that or say, well, hang on a minute. Yeah. So it's true, there are a few times when the Buddha makes a, a kind of declarative comment. You know, it is this way. Like in the um, uh, the uh, Udana, there's verses from the Udana where uh, we recite in the um, chanting, Atibikawe ajatang abutang akatang asankatang. There is the unborn, unoriginated, uncreated, unformed. And... Um, so that uh, there is that, um, say, that way of uh, declaring things or making statements, or the um, Buddha will sometimes say, you know, the, um, this is uh, this is the way it is. You know, I, I say, but the uh, uh, what Lumpur means here, and I feel is is important to appreciate, is that the the whole context of the teachings is that they are offered for reflection, and so when a Dhamma talk is given. That's the spirit in which the teaching is is offered. It's like it's this is I offer this for reflection, and then please take and use whatever is beneficial, whatever is not beneficial, please leave it aside. And so that uh, that within uh, within our tradition, with the Thai forest tradition that we come from, and also from the original Pali, that's the the, the spirit of the teaching. And I also like to point out um, that what we have in the Pali canon, most of the the suttas, they begin with the words, Ewang me sutang, thus have I heard. So that the, the way that the scriptures are framed, just in the, the, uh, the way that they're passed on from one generation to another, is uh, this is um, what has been remembered. And essentially the, those words, Ewang me sutang, that's the, the words of, of Venerable Ananda at the First Council. That, uh, he was asked to recount all of the teachings of the Buddha that he had heard and he had perfect recall 
And he'd also, when he took on the job of being the Buddha's attendant, he asked the Buddha to repeat to him any teaching he might give to someone else when, when Ananda wasn't around. He said, please, uh, can you repeat to me anything that you've taught to somebody else when I wasn't present? So that he was able to memorize all of the Buddha's teachings. And when they had the first council uh, after the Parinibbana, the Buddha's final passing away in May, uh, and then when they gathered together for the rains retreat in uh, in Rajagaha, uh, the uh, the first council gathered for the rains of 500 arahants to uh, recollect and, and codify the teachings. Then they asked Venerable Ananda to recite all the suttas, and that was how uh, he, uh, he began the difference, most of the different sutta sections. Ewang Mei Sutang, thus have I heard. So it's what it's all cast into the form of this is what Ananda remembers, rather than this is absolute reality or this is to be. Um, I say, uh, totally believed in. And, and similarly, the spirit of what's called the Kalama Sutta, where the Buddha was speaking to the the Kalama people in Kesaputta, he was encouraging uh, them to not just blindly believe the, what's written in scripture or what's handed down by authoritative teachers or believing things that everyone around you happens to believe or what makes logical sense by inductive or deductive reasoning, but rather to test things out and see for yourself whether they are beneficial. So that um, when Lumpur says it doesn't make doctrinal statements, then I feel it's important to to recollect, well, that's the Kalama Sutta and then the, the, the framework of the Pali Canon that uh, say supports that sense of this is not uh, being handed to you as this is an absolute truth and you should believe it and if you don't believe it you're you're wrong but rather um, that there's that spirit of uh, encouraging inquiry and taking the you know, listening and receiving the teachings um, but then testing them out and then finding out for ourselves what, what is uh, beneficial and uh, that which is what leads to the 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 end of suffering and also that's a, a frequent a statement that the Buddha makes is that in now as formerly I just teach suffering and the end of suffering. So that's quite a, a common uh, statement that he makes. Sometimes uh, it's in relationship to someone who's asked a very complicated question or something that's based on a lot of, um, uh, say, uh, metaphysical assumptions, uh, ideas about the, un the origin of the universe or what happens to an enlightened being after they pass away and there's kind of met what they call metaphysical questions then uh, often at the end of that the Buddha will say I teach one thing, suffering and the end of suffering <laughs> and you can feel, uh, feel that his intention is to make things extremely simple and say this is, this is what it all comes down to is dukkha and the ending of dukkha and later on in this Dhamma talk, he goes into more detail about the Four Noble Truths and the way of working with each of the Four Truths. In our daily life here at Amravati, we notice when we're suffering. We can blame it on the weather, on, on the people or whatever. But that's not the point, because even if someone is treating us badly, that's just the way the world is. Sometimes people treat us well, sometimes they treat us badly. Because, because of this worldly concern for condition, sorry, because of this worldly concern for conditions. But the suffering is something we create. In a monastery, we're trying to act in, in responsible ways so that we're not intentionally causing anyone to suffer. We're here to encourage each other towards moral responsibility, towards cooperation, kindness, compassion. That's our intention. So this, um, uh, this point that he's making here, uh, you know, suffering, we can blame it on the weather, the people or whatever, but that's not the point. Because even if someone is treating us badly, that's just the way the world is. Again, that can sound a bit fatalistic or that we're not um, being encouraged to, to do something about when <laughs> someone's treating us badly. You know, we can, we can uh, make our perspective felt and um, not be totally passive or submissive with respect to that we can uh, if someone is uh, treating us unfairly or unkindly or, or based on bias or cruelty certainly we can express our perception on that but what he's talking about here is is essentially what the mind adds to any experience uh, of dukkha that is there 
So it's the once again it's the teaching of the the arrow, the two arrows. That uh, and the, the in the the sutta, the Salla Sutta, in the um, uh, in the connected discourses, the the sutta on the arrow, the, it only talks about uh, physical pain. The, the first arrow is that which is uh, the representing physical pain, and the Buddha says. Yeah, no one can uh, evade that. that. If you have a body, you have a mind, we're always going to experience physical pain. And uh, that's, uh, that's unavoidable. So in, uh, that's one kind of dukkha. And then the second arrow is what the mind adds to that. It's the worrying about it, complaining, finding fault, blaming, uh, waiting for it to be over, the sort of negotiating, fretting, uh, resenting, and, and so on. That's all the uh, uh, the mind's creation around that painful feeling. So uh, the word suffering itself, uh, reflecting on this, you, uh, uh, I remember many years ago Ajahn Sajita making the point that suffering is a verb, not a noun. Well, it's both really. <laughs> it's a, it's a, uh, uh, so suffering, the, the word itself, can represent that, uh, that quality of painfulness. So it can be a noun. Um, and in a, in a way that when suffering is taken as, and not, I hope that, I realize that English isn't the first language of everybody here, but uh, a, a noun is a word that represents a thing. It could be a solid thing like a floor or a book or an abstract thing like silence or peace or, or, um, or suffering, <laughs> but it, it's a, a, a thing. And so that was what the word noun means. A verb is a is a, a word that represents doing. It's a, a thing, an, an action that is taken. So, in a way, the 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 dukkha of physical pain that's like suffering as a, a noun. It's a thing that, that 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 happens. We have a body, it has a nervous system. We can feel pain, uh, and then that's the sort of noun side of it. And then the second arrow is really the, the verb side of it, where it's like that's what the mind is doing with that painful feeling. It's what it's doing with being criticized or uh, having a, a, a wrenched uh, knee or a pulled muscle in your back or a headache or being cold and, and wet and so forth in the, in the weather. So that uh, uh, suffering is both a noun and a verb, and that the uh, the the point uh, that Lumpur is uh, addressing here, and and I, I think I was making the the same point a uh, a few readings ago, is that when we talk about suffering being ended by the realization of the four noble truths, that's all to do with uh, arrow number two. That's the that's the verb, <laughs> the verb suffering. That's uh, the the dukkha niroda is not. Uh, uh, ending physical pain. It's not making everybody uh, 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 like you and uh, appreciate you and that you're always physically and psychologically comfortable at all times. That's not what dukkha nirota means. We can have physical pain or we can have uh, you know, painful mental states like sadness or, or grief and uh, and yet not suffer about that, not, not create any kind of agitation or, or problem uh, around that, so I feel it's also helpful to 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 understand when we talk about the ending of suffering. It's not about uh, the ending of arrow number one, but rather it's all uh, to do with that, that that second arrow. What the mind does with any pa uh, painful experience, also what it does with a neutral experience or a pleasant one. You know, because as as most of us have probably realised, you can have a really pleasant experience and still create suffering out of it just by trying to own it or keep it or make it last longer or protect it from from uh, uh, being being lost. So that um, that. Uh, uh, say the uh, attention on what the mind does uh, with each m a momentary experience is really the the core of the practice. So, any questions, thoughts so far, Sister Tanavijay? If you can pick up the microphone. struggle with the what you just said in terms of the mental second arrow I think that most people would have had experience of having had a physical pain 
and not suffer about it. Or having had the same pain and suffer about it one day and not suffer about it the other day. Mm -hmm. So I can understand that from my own experience. I cannot imagine, let alone do, um, have a painful mental state and not suffer about it. <laughs> well, I mean, if I'm, say, feeling grief or sadness, it's inherently painful, so how does one not suffer about it? Is it about feeling every ounce of it and 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 letting it go or, or not holding on to a story? Is, is that what the difference is? Or how, how long we hold on to it? Thank you. Uh, yes, it, uh, you're not the first person to ask that question. <laughs> And it is it is true that the Sala Sutta, the, the, the Sutta on the arrow, it only talks about physical pain. But I do feel it translates into mental pain. And an example I like to give is um, uh, when the, the Buddha was quite old and Sariputta and Moggallana had both passed away. And there's a, a, a Sutta where he uh, uh, he's giving a teaching and there's a, a large group of people there. And the Buddha makes the comment, uh, it feels as though the assembly is empty now that Sariputta and Moggallana have passed away. So he's experiencing that sense of, even though there's, there's lots of you know, hundreds of people gathered, it feels like it's empty because these two great beings are, uh, are no longer present. So that uh, he's uh, experiencing, I, I mean, second-guessing the Buddha is not probably a very sensible idea, but how I read that is that he was experiencing a, that sense of of absence that there are these these great beings, people who have been so uh, so helpful, so close, such uh, good dhamma uh, companions for so long. Uh, they're no longer here, and so the assembly feels empty. There's something missing on account of them having passed away. So that uh, uh, even the uh, even the Buddha uh, in that sort of uh, uh, instance is how I read it, uh, and maybe I, I'm incorrect in that, but uh, uh, I would say that's uh, representing that sense of sadness uh, and having someone close to us has passed away, or or like I was talking about uh, maybe I don't know if you were there for the reading a few days ago where I was describing after Lumpur Sumato's mother had died. And then he had to lead a 10-day retreat you know, right after his mother had suddenly, he, you know, he'd seen her the day before the retreat began, and then she died very suddenly, very, very peacefully, but very, very quickly. And so then he was uh, relating or processing those feelings of grief uh, in, a, in a mindful way as he's teaching a meditation retreat. And I've had that experience myself as well, where I have been really... Uh, uh, really sad and upset, and um, been uh, and been crying, which is unusual for me. I'm not a particularly tearful person these days. <laughs> as a child, I was very, very tearful, but uh, uh, as a monk, I haven't shed that many tears. But I, I have had that experience where you're feeling a sense of profound regret, like I, I've totally messed up i've got i i made a his dreadful mistake and i've uh, i've upset everybody and it was a this is a complete disaster and a feeling of of sadness and loss and tears running down my face and and it was very it was interesting that as soon as i started to sort of um do something with it or make a commentary about it or, or then the, the tears would stop and it was this feeling of things like things being obstructed and if i just stopped creating anything around it then the the sadness was there, the tears were flowing, but it was totally peaceful at the same time. So that even as the tears are flowing, uh, so I can say that without, without any um, uh, delusion or, or not just reporting it from someone else, I've had that experience of there's a profound sadness and uh, grief that you can feel the tears running down your face and there's absolutely nothing wrong with it. There's no, it's, it's painful, but there's no dukkha being created around it. So it's that kind of thing um, that I would be talking about. Uh, but it's, in, in a way, it's shifting the view to um, uh, fully a, 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 
uh, acknowledging and uh, tasting, imbibing the experience, the, the, the painful mental state, but just not not taking it personally, not not um, feeling there's anything wrong with it, not waiting for it to be over. Just here it is. This is, you know, this having happened. There's now this this feeling. This is how it is. Uh, it's this way, and it, it's um, it is very like physical pain in my experience that it's like it's you don't like it it's not likable but it, uh, but there's there's a, a way that it's remarkably peaceful and absolutely okay there's not, the mind isn't trying to do anything with it to make it go away or or um I say uh, interfere with it uh, or, or when it does <laughs> then it, it it creates more agitation it creates suffering around it but just to to fully open the heart to to those states, um, then uh, it's that way. Or or in, in other times when there's a you know, a friendship has been broken, someone who's been sort of close uh, in the in the sangha, a community member, and they've got very disaffected and very upset, and they've they've uh, uh, they've gone away, and that sense of there was a close friendship and now it's broken, it's gone. And uh, that sense of of of, uh, of sadness or, or or loss again, the mind doesn't have to add anything to. It. As soon as you say, "Well, if only I'd said this, and if he hadn't done that, and if I had just said this to him," and <laughs> then it creates a tangle, and 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 the mind starts um, sort of building up self view around that. But in the oh, you know, this is separation from the loved. It feels this way. I was, we were close friends, good, you know, kalyanamita for for so long and now it's broken and then just receiving that that feeling of brokenness or, 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 or something has ended something is that was precious has gone then there's a, a, a painful tone there it's a dolmanasa it's a, a painful mental state but they uh, the mind doesn't have to see it in terms of self and and doesn't have to create suffering around it. Anyway, I offer that for your reflection. <laughs> yes, Anigarika Margit. I don't know, maybe it's related to that question, but I've got a question left over from um, when you did the Ajahn Chah reading 14 days ago. So it was said, when you have a refuge in yourself, you really can depend on others. And that is quite confusing at the beginning, I thought, because for me it was the other way around. As long as you can't, as you don't have a refuge in yourself, you don't, you have to rely on others, right? You are dependent on others, but it was just put the other way around. So if you have a refuge on yourself, you truly can depend on others. And, um, and that's quite interesting. It's quite puzzling in some way. And um, yeah, I just wonder if you can say something on that, because also it was mentioned now, the Kalama Sutta, right? And there is also, people have to rely on themselves to some degree. So, because they have to judge for themselves if somebody mm -hmm. is good to do or not good to do, right? Mm -hmm. So they need some kind of refuge in themselves as well, maybe. I don't know, maybe just you can clarify it. Yeah, uh, I'm, I'm not sure uh, if you, uh, if you, uh, well, I'm not sure if, I, if you heard that correctly or if I read that correctly, because uh, that, the first thing that you said about if you have a refuge in yourself, then you can depend on others. That doesn't sound like uh, uh, something that Ajahn Chah would say. Uh, is it in the book? Yes, I've read it afterwards again. Yeah. Well, that's interesting. Um, <laughs> because uh, the um, I, I'd be uh, I'd I'd be interested to take a, a look and, and reread that that passage. Well, one way that you can understand it is that um, you can uh, rely on the fact that people are always going to be uncertain, 
or that people are going to be unreliable. It depends what you mean, what, what it means by relying on others. Um, that uh, yeah, uh, to, yeah, to be honest, I, I'd, I'd have to read it again to to see the context of it because it, it doesn't really on its own. It doesn't quite fit, um, and uh, because that the only thing that's reliable is that all things are uncertain <laughs> and that uh, uh, you know if you have a, a a refuge in yourself if that if like if you're an island unto yourself if you're a refuge unto yourself then it means you're not looking for security or depend dependability on, on other people or in worldly conditions or in social situations or in your physical health or, or anything of that nature and so um the um uh, I would need to to read that passage again to to see the the, the context for it because it on its own I I get that mm. <laughs> I wonder what that, I, wonder, I also get that mm, I wonder what that means or where's that where that's coming from because it doesn't quite hang together with the the way he uh, Ajahn Chah would most commonly speak and that a sense of investigating uncertainty because that's what he would encourage is that you know people are uncertain things are uncertain relationships are uncertain you know the only thing that is reliable is the the triple gem that's why it's that's why it's a refuge the dhamma uh, the 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 truth of the way things are the uh, the the buddha mind the awake aware mind uh, and the the sangha the quality of of goodness that arises from that, uh, you know, the the awake mind knowing the way things are, those qualities are are reliable. But the all aspects of the world, the body, people, the physical uh, structures, <laughs> relationships, those are all you know, thoroughly uh, unstable and uncertain. And so that, uh, so yeah, I, I'd be interested if you can point out the, that particular passage, I'll, I'll take a look at it and uh, give it some more thought. But was there a second part to what you were asking? Was there a second part to what you were asking or was it just about that? That one passage, yeah. Yeah, it's curious. Um, the uh, People are reliably unreliable, <laughs> I would say. And, uh, Gaspar, you just picked up the microphone? Oh. Oh, there, there is um, one, there's a passage from the suttas where the Buddha says that it's not possible for an untrue person to know another person as either true or untrue, but a true person can discern another person as either true, as true or not true. And I guess there is a sense in which if you have, you know, if you are confused and deluded yourself, you're much more likely to go out to fall for other people's confusion and delusion and um, basically get more easily conned. Whereas if you don't have that, one can, um, one's better at discerning, basically not falling for other people's stuff. Uh, yeah, that makes sense. That's a possibility. Yeah, maybe uh, that, uh, that makes sense. And maybe that's uh, the spirit behind it. That you can discern when people are, are reliable or not reliable in terms of where they're at and what they're what they're sort of um, propounding. Anyway, if you can show, flag that passage for me and show me where it is, I'll take a look. So to continue, sometimes we get lost. We blow up at each other, or we do things that aren't very nice. But that's not our intention. These are the heedless moments. I conduct myself in a moral way, not only for my own benefit, for my own practice, but out of respect for you and towards the Sangha, and towards the community around us, to be someone who lives within the restraints of the moral precepts. Then my intention towards my relationship with you um, is one of metta, uh, kindness and compassion, joy, calm, serenity. Every one of us at least intends to do good and refrain from doing evil. That helps us to look at the suffering we create in a community with those aims. Because a lot of you really suffer here. And this is to be understood. It's the first noble truth, dukkha. The suffering of not getting what we want. 
the suffering of things not being the way we want them, of separation from what we like, the suffering of having to do that which we don't want to do, of having to be restrained when we want to be unrestrained. So interesting that Lumpur makes the comment because a lot of a lot of you really suffer here. Thirty-three years have gone by, and people still manage to suffer. <laughs> Some things don't change, as they say. But um, yeah, this is uh, say the the flavour of the human condition, and also within monasteries, it's the the readiness to to meet that quality of dukkha and to uh, to understand it, to uh, to truly penetrate it. I think of how easy it is to create you in my mind. The nuns are like this, the anagarikas are like that, the bhikkhus are like this, and so forth. One can have these biases. Women are this way, men are that way. Americans are like this, and the English are like that. We can believe that, but these are perceptions of the mind, views that arise and cease, and yet we can create a lot of suffering around them. This one doesn't come to the morning chanting, or that one isn't doing their share of the work, and this one thinks they're too important, or whatever. But the important thing is the suffering, the dukkha, because when we have that, we create a despair in our minds. We become annoyed, indignant, and that takes us to a sense of despair. If we don't understand dukkha here, we won't understand it, no matter where we are, in London, Bangkok, or Washington, D.C., on a mountaintop or in a valley, with good people or bad people. So it's really important to observe suffering, to know dukkha. So going back again to that comment of the Buddha, I teach one thing, dukkha and the ending of dukkha. There are three insights into the first noble truth. There is dukkha, it should be understood, it has been understood. That's how insight works. Recognition that there's something to understand and beginning to know when we understand it. So those are the three insights into the first noble truth. The second noble truth is the origin of dukkha. There is an origin. It's due to the grasping of desire. The second insight of the second noble truth is that this attachment to desire, this identification with desire being me and mine, this following of desire should be let go of leaving it as it is. Then the third insight of the second noble truth is desire has been let go of. Through practice, dukkha has been let go of. There is the first insight into each of the, the truths, the pariyati, uh, which means study, and observing that there is suffering, its origin and so forth. Then there's patipati, or insight into the practice, what we do, how we practice. And the third insight is pativeda, or wisdom. It has been understood. It has been let go of. So probably most of you recognize this, this format that Lumpur is referring to here. So this is what we find in the Dhammachaka Pavatana Sutta, the, the Buddha's first discourse on the, the middle way and the Four Noble Truths. And so when he's making this analysis of the, the four truths, uh, dukkha, uh, the, uh, the experience of dukkha, dissatisfaction, uh, the cause of dukkha, the origin, uh, dukkha samudaya, then dukkha nirodha, the cessation of suffering, and then the fourth truth, the way leading to the cessation of suffering. In the Dhammachaka Sutta, then uh, for each of those four truths, there is sort of three modes and so that uh, firstly there is the, the, in a way, the, the intellectual recognition of it or the, the appreciation of that. So that's uh, pariyati. So pariyati literally means study. So it's the, in a way the, uh, appreciating the idea or the concept um, uh, that there is, uh, there is that quality. Uh, so the first one, the, pari, uh, the pariyati for the first truth is there is dukkha. And then for, uh, for each of the four truths, there's a way of working with them. There's a task involved with each of these four truths. And so the first one is, uh, uh, as uh, those of you who've memorized the Dhammachaka Pavatana Sutta will remember, Parinyayanti. Uh, and Parinya is, uh, is referring to studying or understanding 
Um, so um, Barinha uh, is a um, uh, in Thailand they use it as a, a, a category of um, like, a, like a university degree is a Barinha, like Barinha Ek, Barinha Do, Barinha Three. So the first, uh, you know, a um, bachelor degree, a master's degree, and a superior degree. So that uh, it's to um, uh, really to apprehend or to uh, to receive, to understand. And sometimes when Lumpur was explaining this, he'd say it's uh, to to use the word understand. He said you're standing under it. It's like you're kind of. It's sort of landing on you. You're receiving it from from uh, as a delivery. So I, I like the word apprehend. So the sense of here is uh, dukkha. This is the experience of dukkha, and that that is is a, a quality of acknowledging or, or you know, re receiving, uh, accepting, and so that the uh, and uh, going back to Lumpur's comment earlier on, where he was saying. Um, we can blame it on the weather, we can blame it on people or whatever, but that's not the point. Um, that in that, say, the, the change of attitude or, or this entry point to the Four Noble Truths, what uh, that parinya uh, and the, you know, the, the recognition that dukkha is to be apprehended, it's to be acknowledged, it's to be understood, uh, it's that uh, it's uh, it's not because of the way this monk is behaving. It's not just because Tandarindo is said something offensive, or or that uh, the you know, the weather is is cold and wet. That that is uh, the or oh, you know that that monk has said something unpleasant, or the weather is cold and wet, and uh, and the um, the mind blames or, or ascribes the sort the dukkha to the those particular objects or a painful memory or. a uh, physical ache, uh, uh, physical pain of some kind, that is going from seeing that the source of suffering or the the cause of suffering is the object, this ex this experience, this perception, this idea, this memory, and it's saying, oh well, wherever it's come from, whatever the, whatever its origin is, uh, it, by seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching. This is dukkha. This is the mind saying it shouldn't be this way. This is the mind uh, creating. Uh, Stress and uh, agitation around that experience. This is the experience of dukkha. There's dukkaring going on. There's the mind is creating suffering. So that that that's a really uh, sort of taking the attention off the the object and bringing it back to the subject and recognizing. Oh, this is uh, something that the mind is doing with uh, the uh, the present experience. So anyway, acknowledging this is the second arrow. This is and uh, this is what's happening. So with uh, each of the, the uh, four truths, uh, the, they have their different ways of working with them. So the first one is parinyayanti, it needs to be apprehended, acknowledged, understood. Then the second one, uh, it's pahatabanti, uh, pahanati is to, to let go. Pahana, to relinquish, to let go, to abandon. Uh, so the second noble truth, that of, of craving, um, then the the task involved with the second truth, the, the cause of dukkha, is it is to be let go of. The the third noble truth, um, dukkha niroda, the cessation of dukkha, is it is to be realized. Sachikata bhanti, sacha is truth or reality. So sachikata bhanti, um, it is to be uh, to, to be known to be true or to be realized, to be seen to be to be real or to, in a sense, to. Uh, I appreciate the full implications of that dukkha ending, uh, recognizing oh that painful feel you know that painful attitude that has come to an end. It's not there. There is there's no dukkha around this, and uh, really uh, uh, taking that to heart, acknowledging that, and then the the task involved with the fourth truth is bhaveta bhanti. Uh, the the path, the eightfold path, is to be cultivated. Bhavana is cultivation or development. So uh, those uh, those um, the four tasks uh, involved with each of the uh, the uh, four truths, and so then uh, in Lumpur speaks about those in uh, uh, here and there throughout the the Stama teaching, and then through many of the other other talks that he he has given. So that uh, and I think it's uh, it's uh, important to. Uh, recognize, even though we use the word truth, like the Arya Sacha, the, the Four Noble Truths, that uh, 
um, again, they're not taken as sort of declarations to be believed in, or that say. Or sometimes people say the Buddha said that you have to believe in the Four Noble Truths, like a, an article of faith. But rather, they are um, uh, say a framework for investigation, and so that it's a, a, again in that spirit of in, inquiry, analysis, ex exploration, rather than this is something to to be believed in, and you take it from a the, the voice of a religious authority that this is true and you should believe it, you should go along with it. But this is a, 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 a means, a, a set of ways that are offered in order to investigate our experience. When there is the insight, the origin of suffering has been let go of, quote unquote, there is knowledge of that result, actually letting go. You know what it's like not to be attached to something. Holding a clock is like this. And he would have picked up a clock, you know, this is a, a lid of a glass, but <laughs> holding a clock is like this. And when I put it down, I'm aware of what not holding is like. If I'm holding things and I'm heedless, I don't even notice when I'm no longer holding them, when there's no grasping. I'm not aware of it. Really ignorant and heedless people are so caught up with grasping that even though they're not grasping something all the time, the habit is such that they only notice when, the, when they are grasping at something. Many of you may only feel fully alive when you're filled with greed or anger in some form or another. So letting go can be quite frightening to people. When they let go of things, they may feel they're no longer alive. There's a lot of investment in being a person. Even the view that I have a bad temper, I have a lot of anger, can be a kind of conceit. If I'm angry, I feel very much alive. Sexual desire makes the I feel alive. That's why there's so much obsession with sex in modern European lives. And when there's no sexual desire, no anger, I want to fall asleep. I'm nothing. When there's no mindfulness at all, one just has to seek more sensual pleasure. To eat something, drink something, take drugs or watch something on TV, read something or do something dangerous. You can break the law just because it's exciting to do so. But imagine trying to get people to spend a weekend just holding a clock and noticing what it's like. What a waste of time. I could be out terrorizing the police. I could be at a disco with strobe lights, music blaring in my ears, pot, LSD and scotch. Being attentive to the way things are, no longer just distracting the mind, sounds really painful by comparison. <laughs> so uh, that's um, the uh, say, um, a kind of exercise that uh, you know, Lumpur was doing when when, uh, when he was a novice uh, back in the uh, mid sixties. 1966, when he was a, a summoner uh, in Nongkai, living in a retreat kuti in a, a, a forest monastery in the, in uh, uh, near Nongkai, and um, he was uh, he he was reading the um, uh, the book on the Four Noble Truths, the Sutta teachings on the Four Noble Truths, uh, the the Word of the Buddha by Venerable Nyanati Loka. And investigating the Four Noble Truths, and, and he was—he uh, often mentioned how he was trying to get a sense of what 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 desire, grasping, and letting go was about. And, and then he described how he would pick up something in his kuti, like a clock or a, you know, something, some object, and then and then say, grasping. What does it mean by grasping or clinging? And then he was sort of physically holding it. And then, okay, now letting go. What is letting go? And kind of. Uh, over time, he realized, well, letting go isn't throwing it away or destroying the clock or the, the, the whatever he picked up or the matchbox, but it's just relaxing the grip. And then uh, if you're grasping, there's a sense of tension and agitation. And if there's a relaxation, then it might still be in your hand, and you, but you can hold it or you can put it down, but there's no dukkha uh, either way. So he, he developed a lot of insight into these uh, Four Noble Truths, particularly uh, this second truth about grasping and not grasping. Uh, right back then in the, in the very early days and so it's one of the reasons why the Four Noble, Four Noble Truths and that framework for the teaching has always been something that's a very essential aspect of his way of practice and, and, uh, and how he teaches because of the insight that, that he, he uh, uh, say developed during that time just with that uh, simple holding an object so as he says holding a clock is like this 
when I put it down, I'm aware of, uh, of, the, of what not holding is, it is like. And that, um, and, and then he goes on as uh, uh, as he exp explains this that sometimes you know we only feel alive when we're grasping something, and that that uh, getting uh, and getting angry about things, even though we might feel like I don't want to be angry, <laughs> uh, it, it can be the the case that when we have a conflict or uh, a, we get angry or upset or we have a problem, then we feel alive. There's there's a me here who's pushing against something. Or, or try chasing after something, and so there's a, a sense of defined being. I hate that, or I'm worried about that, or I want that, or that's hurting me. That, that shouldn't. That's that's um, uh, that's something I don't approve of. So the mind often feeds conflicts and desires and obsessions and anxieties, just so that it'll, it, it it supports the sense of I and me and mine. And we don't is we don't really care about the thing that we. Uh, on the surface level that we're hating or loving or worrying about or pursuing or running away from it's much more the the sense of defined being that is the 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 driving force there so th that's what he's uh, he's talking about and how sometimes when you you are things are very peaceful and very quiet you find yourself looking for a problem you're looking for something to worry about or or you you find something to get upset about and there's uh, on one level you think oh it shouldn't be that way and something in you is going yes <laughs> a, a legitimate problem to, to get upset about and that there's a, 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 a gratification there's a, a, a kind of psychological pleasure that comes from that sense of yeah, I, uh, I object or I want or I, you know, I, sh I, I shouldn't have or uh, whatever it might be the the the, the i am forms around and so that uh, what we're trying to do uh, in in, uh, in our practice here at amravati and uh, that ilampur is speaking about here is getting to know that that process and learning to to be at ease with undefined being that we don't have to to say follow those impulses of or that kind of coarse gratification that comes from chasing after something running away from something um, to uh, uh, contending against something, but rather uh, when that dukkha niroda is realized, then uh, rather than just looking for the next interesting thing, that the that ending of dukkha, the heart really opens to that. There's the sachika tabanti, the the the, uh, the realization, the, the full say appreciation of that. Oh, there is no dukkha, and then. Uh, Rather than that absence of defined being uh, seeming something that's unpleasant or painful or like a, a loss, rather if that's uh, if that's acknowledged, if that's uh, really appreciated, then there's a, a massive relaxation, a sense of relief and and great peacefulness. Uh, and say uh, the heart is effectively uh, realizing dhamma. That's what's what's happening. It's it's no longer chasing after some thing uh, or running away from something or contending against some some contending against something, but it's awakening to the, the the presence of the dhamma here and now, and that awakening, that appreciation uh, of the uh, the timeless, uh, ever-present quality of dhamma. Then that brings a a great contentment, a fullness of of being, and um, so it's it's a mysterious thing that we, we chase after objects or run away from them or contend against them or worry about them in order to feed that sense of of, of satisfaction. But the satisfaction only comes when that uh, the, the heart is f freed of those compulsions. And this is what is the the essence of the four noble truths. Is exactly. That the real ending of dukkha, the real quality of peace and fulfilment, only comes when the heart is is uh, freed from those uh, habitual cravings to self sense desire, the craving to be, and the craving to to not be. Any questions, thoughts, reflections, Maureen? If you could pick up the microphone there. Um, as you're talking about the r recognizing the absence 
of certain, you know, of dukkha. Um, it reminds me of in the Satipatthana and the Chittanupasana, um, where the instruction is, you know, a, a con you, a, you see a contracted mind as a contracted mind and an uncontracted mind as an uncontracted mind and those dyads, mm -hmm. you know, through the whole part of the Chittanupasana. Um, I was, I once heard a uh, teaching where it was stated that um, if only, if we're only looking at the presence of, let's say, of a mental state, um, let's say, you know, um, you know, the presence of greed or the presence of anger, and we don't ever actually note when it's absent that we're actually creating, we're um, feeding the eternalism view if we, you know, just start. So, and I, when I've contemplated that in meditation, um, it's true, like if you're constantly looking for what's arising and what's arising and what's arising, but we never see what, when that state passes and note its absence. Um, but it's really hard to do, actually. So I was wondering if you could kind of talk about that, like a, a practice of, of noting, you know, that side of the equation, like a, as a practice. Yeah, very, very good question. Uh, very good question. Uh, yeah, I often, um, particularly when I'm teaching ten-day retreats, uh, that this is something that I, I uh, emphasize. That, uh, and particularly in Lumposomato's teaching, often he spends more time on the third noble truth than on the other three, <laughs> because it's in a way the most important one, but it's also the most subtle, um, because. Noticing absence, like our uh, our sensory organs—the eye, the ears, the nose, the tongue, the body, and the, and the, the mind—they the, uh, we were talking about evolutionary biology and evolutionary psychology a few days ago. So, the in an evolutionary sense, the set, the the eye and the ear and so forth—they're geared to notice objects and changing objects, and that. Uh, mostly, a absence of things means there's no danger. There's nothing to there's nothing to eat. There's nothing that's going to eat you. Sometimes it can be that you know the forest goes completely quiet all around you. You go, oh, there must be a tiger because everything's gone quiet. <laughs> so sometimes silence means oh, something is about to happen or something. But uh, mostly, when there is. Um, uh, an absence of, of an object, there's nothing moving, there's nothing, there's no smell, there's no sight, there's no sound, there's no change, then it's okay, switch off because um, there's nothing desirable, nothing dangerous, um, you, can, uh, you can zone out now. And so that our senses are heavily geared towards discerning objects. This one can be eaten, this one can't be eaten, this one is attractive, this one is dangerous, um, and, and so forth. And so, uh, the ending of things is intrinsically boring. It, it's not exciting to the senses, and that the uh, the uh, and also how the sense organs themselves they habituate. So, like if you if you are in a forest, like in 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 Asia, and there's a high level of sound at night time. You know, all the the crickets are ringing, and uh, the the. Uh, after a while, your your ear gets used to it, and it doesn't register as anything special because you you uh, say your ear is adapting to that level of sound. And then when the crickets go quiet, you go, "Oh, what happened?" <laughs> so the, you notice that. But so our our say uh, if we're sitting in a dim light here in the temple, and then the, the, all the lights come on, then uh, for a moment it's, it's too bright. But then our eyes adapt. The irises um, close up, and we let li less light in, and then it, it's it's bearable. So our sense organs are always adapting to the level of input that we we experience, uh, and it's they're called excitable cells in terms of physiology. They they produce electrical impulses, and so that they uh, the the our 
they're, they're excitable. So they adapt to the level of you know, the sort of average level of sight or of light or sound or, or taste or smell and so on. And so that what that means is that any sensory experience will become boring, will become ordinary. It, it, you know, something that's delicious. Yeah, that uh, uh, if you have a put a, a, a piece of delicious food in your mouth. That deliciousness only stays for a certain amount of time. You, know, you can still sit in your tongue, but your tongue, the nerves, the the, the tasty nerves, the gustatory receptors, <laughs> they will say, "Ooh, interesting, good taste," and they'll send "Ooh, good" out to the to the brain for a short period of time, and then, okay, this is this is this is continuous, therefore not interesting, therefore that excitement uh, it, it habituates to it. So our whole sensory, without going into a whole physiology of excitable cells, <laughs> dumber talk, but the, the whole sensory system is geared to adapting and to making things ordinary. And so, that, and so it's, uh, it's, say, uh, only when things change, uh, then it's, it's interesting. And the attention goes to it. So noticing absence, noticing the ending of things, you've got to go really against the conditioning of the whole sensory system. Like that, because the eye is not attracted by space, by silence, by stillness. The the ear doesn't go to silence. It doesn't. Uh, it's it's not interesting. It's not valuable. It doesn't go. Oh, what's that? Um, most of the time, so that uh, uh, with with respect to your question and Dukkha Niroda and Lumpur Samedha, we put a lot of emphasis on this and, and there's many teachings he would give about noticing space or, you know, or, or listening to silence, you know, to to notice the space in the room, to notice the silence between sound, between words, yeah, just to consciously bring your attention to those endings as the, the, rather than looking at the people, uh, look at the space between the people. <laughs> yeah, to uh, to not just be dwelling on the words, but noticing the silence between the words and so on. And that uh, that takes effort because space, silence, stillness—they're not interesting on an instinctual level. And so that it's uh, there. There needs to be an active engagement with that, and in a sense, putting that program in place first of all saying okay let's make today a day of noticing endings you know and he would uh, he would um, I remember one winter retreat uh, he was talking about going through doors for about two or three weeks he gave Dhamma talks about going through doorways and so and one of the things would be like after you've gone through a door consciously reflect that door I've just gone through is behind me don't just be sort of focusing on what's ahead of you. Recognize oh, that, that that going through the door experience has ceased. That that's no longer present. So you're noticing the absence of the going through a door experience. <laughs> so yeah, all kinds of very creative ways of bringing the attention to those those endings, and how the mind glosses over that. It's oh, there's nothing special here. It's it's okay. The um, uh, the, there's there's nothing worthy of attention, so it's it's going against that and saying let's look at that. This is worthy of attention. Let, let's bring the the mind to this. And so one of one of the the ways I like to to um, to talk about this, and you can get a feeling for how it works, is say if you are um, if you, if you're coming into the temple, you're looking for Emily. So if I can just use you as an example, so so you're looking for Emily. And you think, oh, maybe she's sitting in the temple, and so that you come into the temple uh, during the, the, the say the, during the morning, and then Emily's not here. And you go, oh, okay. Well, Emily's not there. Okay, you just turn around and walk out. So instead of just say, oh, well, the, the 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 thing I'm looking for isn't here. Therefore, this is a a blank space that's got no no value to it because it hasn't got the thing that I'm you know the person that I'm 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 seeking. Therefore, it's it's a nothing. But instead, you come in, and then uh, then you see, oh, Emily's not here. And then you think, okay, it's, let's just stop and appreciate the presence of the temple for a moment. 
And so then what, what you experience, I would imagine, or I would suggest is, first of all, the, the place is just, oh, it's a kind of, oh, the person I'm looking for isn't here. So it's a sort of a blank, valueless space. Then you stop, let, your, let your, your mind be quiet and appreciate the presence of the temple, that's feeling the stillness, silence, spaciousness. Oh. Oh. <laughs> the place that, that uh, changes, the space changes as a, as a kind of blossoming, because it's not just uh, an absence of the thing that I'm looking for, but rather the, the mind is able to awaken to the, the presence of the Dhamma itself, I would say. And it's not just in the temple, you can do that in, in, in your room or in the kitchen or in any place. Uh, it works exactly the same way. So rather than just seeing the, uh, the, the spaces that we use in our ordinary everyday life in terms of their functionality or the things you put there or the people that you're looking for there or the people that are supposed to be there, to to come, to stop, to be still, to to awaken, and then notice what's the quality of this place, this space, when, I, when I'm not seeing it in terms of that person I'm looking for, or that thing that should be there, but just, here it is. Oh, <laughs> and there's a kind of blossoming, a kind of flowering, a, a richness that's, 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 it really is ever-present. You know, it's the, 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 that's the, the ever-present quality of, of Dhamma that is, it can't not be present. <laughs> but we miss it because the attention is going to the objects, the people, the things, the activities. And so that when we are noticing endings, uh, noticing space, noticing silence and stillness, then um, when the mind does attend to that and, and opens up to that, then there's a quality of fullness that is experienced. That is the fullness of Dhamma, the such, the tatata, the suchness of, of Dhamma is, is appreciated. But that's not noticed if it's like, oh, Emily's not here, okay, well, let's go look somewhere else. <laughs> Off you go. So then the, 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 the space that's here is not appreciated. There isn't that sachikata bhanti, that, that ending um, is not realized. So that uh, that uh, uh, many, many Dhamma talks, Lumpur would, would speak about that sachikata bhanti, that dukkani roda has to be realized because it's so easy to overlook like ding the bell goes okay what's next rather than ding the bell goes okay this is the experience of the the meditation has ended the endingness of it uh, it feels like this <laughs> so that you uh, you get used to bringing attention to that quality of cessation of thingness and then uh, and more and more of, a, of an appreciation so if it, but because dukkha niroda is not so sort of, it's not hasn't got sharp edges like dukkha or tanha. <laughs> it's uh, it it doesn't grab the attention. It doesn't catch the the senses. So it takes effort to to be noticing space, to be noticing silence, stillness, the spaces between words and, and things. But when when it is, then that. that that's the way the, the how the Four Noble Truths are fulfilled is through that Sachikata uh, Bhanti, Sachikatanti, that uh, that realization, really, the full imbibing of that quality of oh, there is no dukkha. This is this is the Dhamma. This is exactly the way things are. It's like this. Oh, <laughs> and uh, uh, so that because it's so easily overlooked then it's more important to put attention on it and, uh, and that, um, that uh, recognizing the, the absence of difficulties or obstacles or, or, or problems is, is really helpful. It's like a simple way of doing it, like if you have a, a, an injury, like you've wrenched your knee, you've got a pulled muscle in your, your back or your shoulder or something, and, or you've got a, um, some uh, speck of dust in your eye and all you can think about is your, your eye or your knee or your back, like, or your shoulder, or oh, my shoulder, oh my, oh my eye, my eye, my eye. And then, or you've got a toothache and then the whole universe is gathered around your tooth. And, 
And then the toothache goes, or you get the, du- the you know, speck of dust out of your eye, or your shoulder clears up, and, and then a week later, to say, oh, there is no pain in my shoulder. See, right now, my eye doesn't have any dust in it. And this, uh, what, what's that like, to have, uh, to have no dust in the eye? What's this like, to have no pain in the shoulder? What's this like, that, to, notice, to experience no pain in this knee? Oh, <laughs> so that's also a way of developing that that sense of appreciation of, of space, of absence, of, of cessation. Uh, because, like, you know, if you've got a speck of dust in your eye, then it's the most important thing in the world. And, but then, uh, how long does it take to completely forget about it once it's, once it's gone, once it's fixed and, and the pain is, has departed? So that uh, it's an active going against the conditioning of the senses, not through hating them or aversion or suppressing, but rather seeing that that's how they are rigged. They're literally the biology of our senses is rigged. You know, it, it, it's set to get our attention and then to be habituated to to uh, uh, to 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 uh, say. Uh, only get the attention going to that which is changing and mobile and threatening or promising, and if it's not doing that, then the whole system, literally your your biological system, is saying this is not interesting, this is not valuable. Therefore, switch off. Time, you know, go to sleep, or you can. Uh, there's there's nothing nothing worth paying attention to. Therefore, zone out. And so, yeah. Uh, well, it's six minutes past, so can I wait till another time? Okay, good. So let's call it quits there for today.